This Knowledge at Wharton podcast was produced in conjunction with GE Capital. For more information, please visit gecapital.com slash Americas. We're meeting today to discuss how the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, is affecting small and mid-sized companies that are facing a lot of shifting rules and confusing information over implementation. So to help us gain some clarity about these topics, we're going to speak with Jeff Englander, who's a senior vice president and a senior research analyst at GE Capital, and also with Lawrence Gelbort, who's an instructor here at Wharton. And he's also on the Huffington Post's Small Business Board of Directors, as well as being an entrepreneur himself. So thanks to both of you for joining us today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. The first two questions I want to ask you both probably apply uh, both to larger employers and smaller employers. As you know, there's a split in how these rules affect uh, employers with more than or less than 50 employees. But uh, for everyone's got to be concerned about the next couple of things. And so uh, let's, let's get started with one of those. So there have been a lot of changes to some of the Health Care Act deadlines for employers and individuals recently. Um, Jeff, maybe you can start us off and talk about which are most important to employers and and what they mean for those employers? Sure. I think first and foremost, uh, the biggest one was the employer mandate, which requires employers with 50 or more full-time employers, so-called applicable large employers, to offer insurance to their employees has been delayed until January 1st of 2015. Uh, In addition, the so-called employer and insurer reporting obligations, um, which required employers to talk about who's eligible for coverage, who's been offered for coverage, um, you know, which employees are enrolled in coverage, have also been delayed until uh, January of 2015, and then that happened back in July of this year. So it's it's not that they don't have to be thinking and preparing. It's just that they're um, they they've got a bit of a reprieve in figuring out the best way to go about what it is they have to do. Is that right? That's correct, and I think that that's actually a perfect way to put it. Uh, you know, to use this year uh, to think and prepare and understand what their obligations are going to be uh, to figure out what they're going to have to do in the coming year. That really is is what you want to use this you know delay year for. Okay. And um, along those same lines, certain things haven't changed. So which deadlines do employers need to still be aware of uh, for 2014? In other words, what, what didn't change? Which, which rules didn't get delayed? Uh, a number of them, and, and you know, uh, significant important ones, uh, W-2 reporting of employer-sponsored insurance uh, goes into effect January 1, 2014. Employers are required to provide their employees with what's called a summary of benefits and coverage notice, which is a standardized eight-page form in what's called a linguistically appropriate format, uh, meaning in the language of the majority of their employees as well as, as um, others who have special language requirements, and that must indicate in 2014 whether their plan provides minimum value, which we'll define later. There's also the so-called comparative effectiveness fee, uh, which went into effect in July of this year. There's the so-called reinsurance fee, uh, which will be based on the enrollment counts uh, in November of this year, and we paid in January of 2015. And last but not least, uh, the so-called exchange or marketplace notice, uh, where employees had to be notified about state and federally funded health insurance marketplaces, which was due in October, and now all employers are required to inform all of their new employees of this when they're hired. All right, you mentioned something about 
minimal value. I, I know that you've noted elsewhere that coverage is, must be, quote-unquote, affordable and offer, quote-unquote, minimal value, which is what you were talking about uh, just a moment ago. So could you discuss um, how those are defined in the law? Sure. Under the law, um, in order for an employer's coverage to be deemed um, uh, what they call uh, their shared responsibility obligation, it must meet two requirements, uh, the affordability and minimum value. Under affordability, this means that employers um, for self-only coverage for the employee must um, cost no more than 9.5% of that employee's W-2 wages with that employer for uh, the previous year. Um, And this is what's called a safe harbor, and this is basically a proxy for the employer to use for household income to determine affordability of coverage. So basically the the coverage for a a single employer, single employee for self-only coverage can't be more than 9.5% of their W-2 wages with you. Uh, in addition, so-called minimum value um, says that 60% of the actuarial value of the benefits that the plan is going to be paid out um, must be covered by the plan. And there are so-called minimum value calculators um, available at different websites. There's also what they call safe harbor methods. And you can also hire an actuary to look at your plan and determine whether it's covering 60% of the cost of the benefits of the plan. Uh, you mentioned that the... Um the rules uh, state that uh, an employee's cost for self self coverage uh, is can be no more than nine and a half percent of their wages. What if they want to get their family on the program? What happens then? There are different requirements. Uh, the family uh, and the employers can charge different rates, and you need to look at that as well as the fact that um, certain instances where uh, people can be covered under their spouse's plan. So there are different rules that you need to look at. But those 9.5% requirements apply only, once again, to, uh, you know, for the mandate purposes, for only for self-only coverage. Right. Okay. Uh, Lawrence, you want to add to that? Sure. So... I think that from a small business perspective, a lot of small business owners have a lot of questions about these issues, and they haven't really gone into them in depth. And uh, in some ways, having that extra year is a good thing as long as you take it and make something useful out of it. So one of the things that I think all small business owners can do to help them uh, meet all the requirements but also make the best use of the time of the professionals that they have in their network, whether those are part-time people, whether they're on an advisory board or a board of directors or uh, full or part-time employees who might be employed in legal or accounting or banking, is to get with those people and talk with them about what should be measured beforehand, as Jeffrey's pointed out, there is opportunity here to see what's going to be effective from a financial standpoint. And I also know as an entrepreneur myself and someone who works with a lot of small businesses, sometimes things get put off until the last minute. And the best way to use your your assets is to get online and do some research yourself, find out some of these factors and get as far along as you can before you engage those professionals so you can get the most use out of them. So this is probably good advice for small and, and mid-sized companies that, doing so, the same yes. thing. So what are some of the considerations that larger employers have to weigh as they look at extending health care coverage to their employees? Um, the considerations that they want to weigh as they look at this is just to make sure they don't just look at the economic factors of the cost of the coverage and the cost of the penalty. Uh, first of all, they have to look at the after-tax cost of the coverage, which is tax-deductible, versus the after-tax cost of the penalty, which is not deductible. They also want to look at if they're you know, currently providing insurance, 
uh, and they decide to no longer provide insurance, they'll have to compensate their employees for that loss of coverage um, because they're now taking away a tax-sheltered income, which was paying for that coverage to the employee, uh, and they're going to have to look at how much they'll have to compensate those employees. In addition, you want to look at you know the employment situation, the competitiveness of the labor market. Um, you know, you want to be able to use insurance possibly um, as a hiring, you know, recruitment and retention tool. Uh, also, you know, one thing that people uh, have have had to consider as you've looked at a number of people who've who've elected to drop insurance. Uh, it, or uh, consider dropping insurance is the impact that this has on your brand and reputation. A lot of people spend a great deal of time and effort uh, carefully cultivating their brand and their reputation, and you really want to consider what this is going to do to your brand, um, you know, both uh, with other uh, employers, uh, compared to other employers, rather, and within the community and within your marketplace. And last but not least, you have to consider the relative age and income levels of the employer and labor force. Because of the way insurance is structured on the exchanges, uh, younger employers, because of the rating bans, uh, will, younger employees, because of the rating bans, will actually be playing a little bit more than they would be otherwise. So younger employees are going to be demanding more compensation if you choose not to offer insurance. And higher uh, income level employees who were getting the tax sheltered uh, in, insurance uh, are now going to be deliver, uh, demanding higher incomes, uh, particularly older employees who tend to have higher incomes to replace the insurance that they no longer have. Lawrence? You know, I also think that uh, when you have a larger organization, uh, Jeffrey made this point about the fact that it's not just the cost of the coverage. There are also brand issues and this is a very relevant uh, when you have to decide who are the stakeholders, identify those stakeholders, identify the effect on them. And so for a large company, that may be different than for a medium or small-sized company. I think that is a very – it's easy to measure the, the financial payments, and it's obviously good to do that. But then you have the fuzzy and very important decision about deciding – what the uh, impact is going to be on your stakeholders. So I think that's a good thing to keep in mind. I want to follow up on that a little because it's very interesting. We can all imagine uh, certain big companies that have been in the news um, and have, um, you know, it's been pointed out that they're that they're pretty skimpy with their benefits and so forth. Uh, but if you're a medium-sized company or let's say a regional firm and that sort of thing, you're not going to get that kind of national play. And so... Um, what are the what are the branding considerations for these mid-sized companies versus you know the very large companies? I would say for the mid-sized companies, they're going to have a somewhat easier time in finding comparable size companies and to see what what is offered out there and get a sense of what the marketplace is. So this gives you a year to survey directly and indirectly what those other companies are doing and give yourself a sense as a company of where you fall in that uh, hierarchy. And then the one thing I'd like to add. Uh, Steve is, you know, you, you, even though you probably don't spend as much, you know, maybe in advertising on a national scale as a smaller or mid-sized company, you need to look at some of the things you'll do, maybe in terms of a community efforts, even you know, through sponsoring little leagues and the like. You know, those are all branding efforts that you want to consider as you look at, uh, you know, whether or not to offer insurance. And you also have to look at, you know, how is this going to position you competitively? Is this going to give you a competitive advantage or place you at a competitive disadvantage? Um, versus other people in the marketplace. I know here at the University of Pennsylvania, they've had a lot of these drives that Jeffrey had mentioned to get people to be aware of their health numbers and what their health is. And in fact, they found uh, a couple of employees who were in very serious uh, 
you know, had very serious conditions and didn't become aware of it until they came in. And so uh, that's something that the university can show that it's good for uh, not only for, you know, the employees, but it can actually be really directly related not just to the dollars, but directly to their health. Okay. Now, uh, also for larger employers, there's questions about whether or not employers must offer coverage for variable hour employees. Apparently, this is determined in part by some uh, IRS rules that are obscure to some, maybe known well to accountants. Uh, But many people just don't understand that. So uh, first of all, what is the definition of a variable hour employee? And second, uh, what, what do the rules require of large employers? The rules require that any employee who works 30 hours or more on average um, you know, for the previous year must be offered insurance. Now, the rules for determining that uh, are a little bit complicated in the sense that the IRS defines three time periods for the so-called employee status uh, for whether or not an employer has to offer insurance under the mandate. They, uh, they define what's called a measurement period, a stability period, and an administrative period. The measurement period is, is a period of between three and 12 months selected by the employer where the employer basically looks back and will track the employee's hours during this measurement period. Uh, once they've tracked that, if the employee works 30 hours or more during that period and they have over 50 or more full-time employees or full-time equivalent employees and are the so-called applicable large employer, they must offer insurance um, during what's called the stability period, which is the period subsequent to the measurement period. Uh, that's a period of at least six months and no less than that so, uh, initial measurement period. It begins after that standard measurement period and what's, and a, uh, what's called an administrative period. And the last period defined is this administrative period, and it's, it's very similar to what you would go through now um, in an open enrollment period. It's up to approximately 90 days. It's generally the period between that measurement period and the stability period when they're offered the insurance. It's when the company would, the period that, that the company would use to determine eligibility, notify the employee that they're eligible for coverage, and enroll the employee if they choose to get the coverage. And this administrative period would cover the entire period between the date when the employee becomes eligible for coverage and the date the employee is offered coverage. Um, you know, uh, this is an extremely complicated calculation, um, and, you know, it's highly recommended uh, that you look at this, you know, in, in a very detailed fashion uh, and even getting uh, help from your professional advisors on calculating this. Okay. Sounds like the devil is in the details there. Absolutely. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.